Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. The Pyramid Year, session number 499. Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to The Pre-Med Years. Thank you so much for joining me today. Sorry about my voice, I'm getting over a cold. I'm excited to have an amazing guest for you today. We nerded out about technology, AI, machine learning, all that kind of fun stuff, and how it relates to you as a pre-med student and future physician. Today I'm talking to the author of The Doctor and the Algorithm, Promise, Peril, and the Future of AI Health, Dr. S. Scott Graham, who is a professor at the University of Texas in Austin. We have a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Before we do, I want to talk about the MCAT Minutes brought to you by Blueprint MCAT. Don't forget to go sign up for a free account over at blueprintmcat.com because as this episode is coming out in September, you need to start thinking about what your six-month or four-month study plan is going to look like if you're taking the MCAT at the beginning of the year. So go over to blueprintmcat.com, sign up for that free account, use their free study planner tool to help plan out your schedule. Scott, welcome to the pre-med years. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Ryan. I'm excited to talk about um, the Terminator taking over the medical world and, and coming coming, uh, coming to a uh, CAT scan near you soon, maybe. We will see. So I, I want to talk about uh, how I first was introduced to you was when a, a member of my team was like, hey, check out this book, The Doctor and the Algorithm. I'm like, ooh, this is really interesting. I'm going to reach out to this Scott Graham guy and, and see if he wants to come talk about how all of these students we're helping in the pre-med world are never going to have jobs because AI is going to take over, right? That's that's the goal of your book? I mean, that's what some <laughs> books say, but that's definitely not the goal of my book. <laughs> yeah. So so I do a series called e-shadowing, and, and oftentimes on that e-shadowing series, uh, I'll ask about AI. Uh, specifically around different specialties where we know AI is kind of creeping in a little bit. How did you first get involved in this world of AI and healthcare? Yeah, good question. I, you know, for a long time, I have been researching the human factors in biomedical research. So I'm curious about how issues of bias, issues of funding, issues of team dynamics 
influence how clinical trials happen. Mm -hmm. And obviously, recently, there's been huge investments in AI. It's a whole new area of biomedical research Mm -hmm. that is exploding, Uh, perhaps not that new, depending on the sector, but it's exploding now. Huge venture capital investments over the last 10 years. And uh, I was really curious because we see a collision of two different cultures, right? So we've got our standard healthcare biomedical research culture and tech, right? And tech and Silicon Valley has its own way of working, its own way of thinking. Um, It tends to prioritize rapid development and, and throwing out products to test them in a live environment which is a little scary from a health and medicine perspective. Yeah. Mark, Mark Zuckerberg's favorite fa- famous words, work fast and break things. That That's right. Work right? quite well in the medical world. Exactly. And so it's just a fascinating problem for me to look at how um, this tradition in the medical world of careful clinical trials, long-term research collides with move fast and break things in tech. Yeah. Yeah, we don't want to break people. That's, that's uh, it. Kind of goes against the whole do no harm thing. Uh, so, silly uh, Hippocrates. Uh, although it's not in the Hippocratic Oath, um, is something else he said. Uh, that's always a, a fun thing I like to point out. So, healthcare and and AI and biomedical research. I, I want to know. Let's let's go even further back. Like, how did you get into this whole world of of understanding the human factors of 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 research. Yeah. So this, it all goes back to my sort of doctoral training. So I was in a, a program where you're learning about scientific and technical communication and, and I, people in that program studied a lot of things, engineers, usually transportation experts. And I happened to have some family in healthcare. Mm-hmm. And so in, in one respect, it was like, Oh, cool. I've got a connect here that can work for a dissertation topic. Yeah. And then it took over my life. I became really <laughs> fascinated about it because it, it's really exciting to me to look at the dynamic of clinicians and clinical researchers debating, arguing, um, trying to find the best way to help patients. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's an area where there's a ton of competing ideas, where there's rigorous research from different disciplinary domains, uh, where sometimes patients are incredibly complicated and require multiple subspecialties. And all of that creates an environment where that is grounded in science and grounded in cutting edge science. And I love that, but also has to be made to work for a specific clinical case through discussion, through yeah. compromise, through consensus. So I, I'm going to take a little detour and, and we can edit this out if we want to, or you, if you want me to. Okay. Over the last couple of years, we've seen healthcare communication front and center in the world with, with COVID, with vaccine rollouts, with misinformation, with masks don't work, masks do work. Just kidding. I was just trying to save the supply. Like with all of your background, how much of that was like watching a train wreck happen and going, if only, if only. Yeah. I mean, it was, it's been an ongoing two year train wreck from a communication perspective. Um, the, the parts that were most harrowing to me were when you hear someone like Anthony Fauci on an interview in CNN say, we were surprised by the lack of vaccine uptake. Mm. And like no social scientist working in health for the last decade 
could ever have been surprised. <laughs> and, and I think Dr. Fauci does great work. And I think he's done a lot of important things here. But I, I can't help but feel that maybe a few more social scientists or public health professionals needed to be on some of these teams in order to leverage that research that has been, among other things, well-funded by the NIH. Yeah. So it's it's been interesting, right? The the scientific community, the majority of the scientific community has watched what has played out and understands that science changes and it's frustrating. And one day this is good and the next day it's bad. And here's why. And here's the new data. And we finally, um, which which we've gotten away from as a scientific community of doing kind of confirmation studies to go, hey, that team over there said this is what happens. Let's see if we can replicate it. Nobody does that anymore because it's not sexy, unfortunately. And and I think, I, I don't know if it's good that all of this science has happened in the public eye, but it's science. And a lot of people have unfortunately taken that to go, oh, you guys don't know what you're doing. The scientific community, a bunch of frauds and you're just changing your mind. I don't how, how much of that kind of goes toward what you study, what you research and and how you help people communicate in this healthcare world. Yeah. So a little bit uh, of my research touches on that. And the one thing that I think uh, was a big missed opportunity was expectations management. You know, you and I know that there's constant uncertainty in the scientific pro- process, that findings will be revised and will change. And public health, uh, the public health messaging apparatus didn't want to communicate that because they wanted people to do certain things. And, you know, buy mass at the right time, don't buy mass at the wrong time, that sort of stuff. And, yeah. uh, it created an expectations problem, I think, because they were over they, the messages that they sent into the world were a little overly confident about the state of the science. So as soon as the state of the science changed, people didn't trust it. Yeah. And, and this is something we have a little data on in some analog areas. So research in climate communication has found that if climate scientists communicate honestly the uncertainty in the underlying data, that the general public is more likely to trust what the scientists are saying, right? That act of humility is an important part of the communication process. And I don't think that factored into, especially a lot of the early days, public health messaging in this country. Do you think that's, and this, I hope will help educate the people listening to this who are coming up as as pre-meds, maybe medical students listening to this. Do you think that the the way that things were communicated and have been communicated and continue to be communicated as like we know like this is the answer this is what's going on it, do you think that's ego do you think that's kind of paternalistic behavior where it's like you have to do what i say or or do you think that's just ignorance about how we should be communicating That's a great question. Um, My gut, and I'd love to see some research that would really test this out, but my gut is that it's (laughs) a- Talk about some humility. (laughs) Yeah. I I would like to see some research. (laughs) Um, Fear Mm. and um, ignorance. So fear. there's a lot of fear early days in a pandemic that people aren't going to comply. They're not going to do the things that we need them to do to keep it contained. And I think that then the ignorance comes in 
people increase the levels of confidence beyond what they feel, hoping that that will lead to compliance, even though that's not clear from some of the data we have on best practices. And so, so I think, and I understand why, right? This was moving so quickly in March, 2020. And as a public health professional, if I were that kind of person, I would want to clamp it down hard so it didn't become what it became. And so I can see why folks were motivated to communicate higher degrees of certainty to, in the hopes to get people to do what they wanted them to do. But it turns out that's not always, or perhaps even often the best way to get people to do what you want them to do. Yeah, unfortunately, I, th- I think we need to put a little more faith in in uh, in the people we're talking to, um, and and not try to demand and force, and just l- let them let them see your humbleness and see that there are are no certainties in this world, unfortunately. And even if the data looks really good, we are all individual humans with our own genetic makeup that sometimes doesn't work exactly the way that we thought it would. Uh, and, and that's hard to communicate to 300 million people. Yeah, and that's a real great point. And I could you know hear myself, it's so easy to fall into the trap, right? When I'm giving you my answer a moment ago, I'm using the word compliance, yeah. which I hate and would not recommend people using, yeah. right? That's not how to think through... Um, having a dialogue with people in order to help the public or patients come to the best health approach for them. Yeah. And I am very much on the public health trumps all train and <laughs> give everyone the the, the jab. Um, so it's it's hard. It's a hard balance to, <clears throat> to make sure that you're doing the right thing for for everyone involved and people kind of get a little bit of a say. Um, but just, just a little bit. So let's let's talk about the AI world because I am a huge tech nerd. Uh, I uh, run a software company now. Uh, we are digging into some some AI projects that potentially can work with what we're doing to help students make better decisions in their pre-med journey. How does AI in the medical world, how is that starting to play out? The first thing it's starting to play out with is a ton of enthusiasm and uh, an unfortunate amount of hype. Right? So, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, 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 I describe myself as AI cautiously optimistic, mm-hmm. and I think that's a good place to be, right? There are some exciting developments coming. Uh, I'm particularly enthusiastic about some of the drug discovery applications. Mm-hmm. So they're using AI to ingest all sorts of pharmacology data and then it will recommend possible candidate drugs for testing yeah. uh, in orphan drug conditions or where there's a particular patient population that hasn't been responded responded well to the standard of care. That's super exciting. I'm super excited about um, the potential improvements for clinical notes, right? As you know this as a as an MD, right? But uh, physicians talk all the time about the the misery of pajama time and uh, trying to keep up with those notes uh, for all the patients you saw that day. And if AI can capture some of that visit yeah. as it's happening, yeah, I, I'm a huge I'm a huge believer in and every room should be microphoned up the wazoo. Video camera up the wazoo, the cameras seeing the physical exam that the the physician is doing, the PA is doing, and goes, oh, that's a knee range of motion test. I know what that is. And the camera's set up just right to to kind of see the angles and the range of motion and just right, right in. Like, why isn't that a thing yet? 
It'd be great, but natural language processing is one of the most difficult areas. GPT-3, man, GPT-3. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's coming. <laughs> We're getting there. Um, but of course, this is the challenge is AI never moves quite as fast as people want it to. Yeah. And when it does move fast, it can be bad, right? So one of the things I try to argue in the book is that health AI is the best when you've got all three perspectives in the room. So you need top-notch computer science. Mm-hmm. You need top-notch biomedical researchers, mm-hmm. and you need some sort of understanding of the human factors involved. Yeah. And when AI gets super dangerous um, is sometimes you have some computer scientists say, well, I know how to work data. I know how to code. I'm just going to do this without talking to doctors, yeah. without doing a rigorous clinical trial. And that ends up producing products that can be actively dangerous to patients. We don't want that. And sometimes we have uh, physicians or physician researchers who are excited about this, say, well, I can teach myself R and I, I can teach myself Python and I can make an AI system and we get some data leakage problems. And so we really need all the expertise in the room and we need to understand that good AI is going to have that biomedical research timeline, not that Silicon Valley timeline. Yeah. Let's, let's talk in, and I don't know how much you like to parse the the nuances here of the language from from what i understand which is infinitesimally less than you is there's there's computer programming right there there's code there's machine learning and then there's ai which is kind of the the top level from what i understand almost nothing is true ai these days it's all just really 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 intricate algorithms that are kind of determining everything and and nothing is really kind of growing and learning and doing what it needs to do. How, how much of that uh, do you think is the case or are, are there instances in the medical world where no, like there, I, I know um, I was listening to a, a podcast recently where there was a big protein folding um, kind of breakthrough from artificial intelligence where we kind of have finally figured out how amino acids, how proteins fold and and what they look like. And and that's a big breakthrough for us because then maybe we can go create these things uh, so they fold in the right way that our body uses them. Uh, how, how much is true AI versus just really intricate code? Yeah, there's a lot of slippage in the language there for sure. And so historically, true AI has meant artificial general intelligence. So that's your HAL 9000, your Cortana, your Jarvis, depending on what your media landscape is. Um, but it's, it's, it's the robot who thinks and talks and can do anything. Yeah. And basically, that's not happening. Almost everything that's deployed right now are machine learning systems, just like you were talking about. And they're high throughput statistical pattern recognition machines. And they can usually do one thing really, really well. And so things that feel more and more like AI are often a couple of different machine learning systems stapled together. Um, and that they can produce a couple of different outputs based on this, the systems that were stapled together. But most of what we're looking at these days is that machine learning. And people call it AI because machine learning is the dominant paradigm within the big tent of AI. Yeah. But it's not what we're thinking about when we're thinking sci-fi robots. Yeah. For the medical world, and then I want to dive into some some kind of pre-med specific stuff. For the medical world, for patients, for physicians and, and healthcare providers communicating with patients, 
about potentially how ML AI is integrating into their care. How much does systems like uh, full self-driving or, or uh, whatever, I always forget what Elon calls his uh, autopilot um, system on Tesla, where he calls that, it's autopilot, like take a nap, whatever. <laughs> Obviously, you can't do that. Um, every every once in a while in the news, someone literally takes a nap in their Tesla and they crash and, and someone gets hurt. Um, how much do you think that hurts our future as healthcare providers in, in communicating this to patients? I think it hurt a fair amount, but that that might not necessarily be a bad thing, which is to say, I think some of the unbridled enthusiasm around this, it runs the risk of deploying in not entirely well-vetted technology. Mm. And so if some of these high profile cases from autopilot not working or from Facebook issues raise a note of caution that we should be slow and make sure that this is all well grounded in biomedical research. I think that's a good outcome on the end. Um, But there may be some trust issues going forward. Uh, Most AI right now, of course, in the clinical space is not like autopilot. It's all human in the loop, right? So one of the biggest things that they test for in AI studies is the the two comparison groups are like radiologists diagnosing with AI and radiologists diagnosing without AI, right? Those are the comparison. There's no case where it's just the AI by itself. It's it's not the chess player versus the computer. Exactly. Yeah. And, And let's, all right, let's, let's kind of go into that world. So for the future radiologist listening to this, some some student who's like, I've always wanted to be a radiologist. My mom's a radiologist. I want to be a radiologist. We've for 20 years have probably said, oh, like, don't go into radiology. Computers are going to take over your job. Like, is that still 20 years off? Is that five years off? Or will it always be an adjunct, you think, a, a kind of a companion to where the the radiologist will use AI in whatever fashion that looks like to help them do their job, but it won't replace their job. I think it's pretty unlikely to reliably replace radiologists or any other clinical subspecialty for that matter. Uh, you know, these ML systems, again, they're high throughput pattern recognition systems. And at the end of the day, when it comes to making decisions about individual patients, there's always this moment that jumps the gap between the science of medicine and the art of medicine. Mm -hmm. And I think you need a human in the loop to help bridge that gap. Yeah. And so I think that these systems will, I mean, one of the main outcomes right now is, is increasing the number of patients you can see in the day. And I'm not sure that that's good necessarily, but um, you know, rather than replacing, and I think we're going to see more and more of that. And I think it's going to be up to professional communities, um, uh, professional medical organizations to decide, do they want to resist that a little bit yeah, uh, so that you can have more face time with patients? How, how much do you think that is, potential bias coming through from from both sides going well i'm a human and humans are are very smart people and i don't know if a computer can ever replace a human so you have a little bit of that bias but then you also have potential bias on the other end going well as a patient i don't know if i want to 
give up all of this, uh, all of the the four years of medical school and five years of residency, whatever it is, and, and hand it over to a computer. Yeah, I think it's both at once. I mean, there's, you know, that's one of the reasons we have professional medical organizations is to protect the economic side of healthcare practice, right? They also publish important guidelines, monitor the science, but they did emerge out of protecting some of the job related aspects. Yeah. Uh, so I, I know there's some bias in that system. And again, patients, um, have come, you know, I've been seeing human doctors all my life. I've never knowingly seen a robot doctor. Um, <laughs> uh, and I think I would be really nervous the first time I did, if I ever did, yeah. right? it would, it would make me uncomfortable. So I agree. There's, there's bias in there. I guess what I would say is, you know, maybe I'm underestimating where AI can go. What I want to see and what I hope we all want to see is if we're replacing or increasingly augmenting clinical practice, I want to see these systems vetted with the highest quality medical research. Yeah. And then I want to see them vetted on improving health outcomes, not just increasing the rate at which a provider can see a patient. Yeah. And if we start to see that, then I think that's the foundation of trust on both sides of the equation, right? Doctors want to know that it's going to be better for their patients and patients want to know it's going to be better for them, not just a cost-saving measure for the hospital owner. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting, right? I, I think about, and I'm a huge tech enthusiast. I, I think technology can solve almost all of our problems that we have in this world. And, and I like one of the use cases that just popped in my mind is, is uh a pathologist who's looking at a blood smear and misses a lymphoma or misses something early, early stages of the lymphoma that in in five years, super easy to catch because it's everywhere. But there was one cell on that blood smear that a computer would go, uh-oh, like raise the red flags, this looks weird, versus the 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 pathologist kind of scanning around a slide going this looks this looks good and 99.99% of it does look good and then that 0.01 is like uh-oh and and from an outcome standpoint if we can start treatment for that patient 5 years earlier like that's huge both from patient outcome probably cost savings to everyone involved as well so i mean that that kind of stuff is really interesting and i wonder if we'll ever get to a world where Right. In, the, in the chess world, I brought up the, the computers, all, all these grandmasters in the chess world play against AI for fun or the, um, that, the, the Chinese game, uh, I forget, they, they play as well. Oh, go. Uh, yeah, go. Um, like, wh- wh- where are those to, to, get, um, to get some hype around AI to like, let's have a contest, the radiologist versus the computer, the pathologist versus the computer. Or do you think like there's too much conflict there for the radiologist, for the, the, the kind of professional societies around that to go like, we don't, we don't want to do that. We don't want to go, Oh, look, the computer beat the doctor. I mean, to a certain extent, um, it's not happening as a public spectacle, but it's happening in the journal literature right now. Mm. So usually what they do when they test these is they put them head to head against um, a hospital team. So you've got your attending, your residents, your med students, and they all compete. And then frequent, more and more frequently, the AI is coming out 
ahead of the med student and ahead of the resident and getting closer and closer in parallel to the attending. And so that's happening. Do we want to make it a public spectacle? I don't know. Um, the, the cautionary tale for me is we still have radiologists and oncologists debating how often we should do mammography because you want to catch it early, just like that blood slide you were talking yeah. about. But if we get too many false positives, then in the aggregate, yeah, uh, it can create some yeah. issues, obviously, for, for who's, over-treating. Who's, ca- who's calling the false positives? And that's a great question. The humans, the humans are. Yep. <laughs> Where are the computers? It's it's really fun, right? And, and obviously, mm-hmm. I, I want jobs for people. Um, and right. I think if technology can do a better job, save more money, help more patients, um, cause less uh, damage to patients because we can treat them with less medications, with smaller surgeries, with all of that stuff, like that's good for the world. And I'm sorry, future radiologists or future pathologists or future whoever you are, that we're going to need less of you in the future. Like, that's just progress. And, and I'm OK with that. It's, it's a hard thing to say, but. It is a hard thing to say. And yeah, I, but especially for things that you mentioned, minimum, minimum effective dose. Yeah. for an individual patient, right? Finding that is really hard. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've got some family who are very small people <laughs> and, you know, they often just get whatever the, the, the latest clinical trial says for the starter dose and it can be too much for them. Yeah. And I think AI is a great way to help, again, accommodate that to individual patients, the kind of customized calculated dosing yeah. be super helpful. In the in the Star Trek world, they have the tricorder, uh, and Star Trek is not as popular as it used to be. And I n- I never was a big Trekkie, but the tricorder I think everyone my generation knows about as this like magic wand that the doctor would kind of wave or whoever it was would wave, and the tricorder would go up. Oh, this person has an aneurysm over here or whatever over there, uh, and here's what you need to do. Do you think from a an AI perspective? Um, we're we're going to get a little bit closer to that world, whether it's kind of a combined CT MRI scans or combined CT MRI ultrasound scans. Like where where are we headed in that world, do you think? Yeah, I think that is definitely coming and it's coming sooner than later, but not in the small sort of uh, magic wand format, obviously, right? So it's going to start with the same folks who are getting elective full body PET scans just because they want to know, Yeah, right? So folks (laughs) who could pay for this out of pocket. The rich guys in Silicon Valley. (laughs) Absolutely. And so so they're going to go to Mayo, they're going to get their full body scan and the the clinic there is going to apply a whole bunch of algorithms to all those scans in order to help identify anything that could someday go wrong. And, and this is a, a, is both exciting, but also a potential risk um, in terms of our communities, right? Because a lot of the benefits of AI are going to accrue to the rich guys, Mm -hmm. as you put it, um, especially early on. And um, so I think that's something we have to be I don't want to overly dampen the excitement because I do think there's a lot of promising opportunities here that can help uh, make care less expensive, make it more effective, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't want to live in a world where only the 1% get the benefits of those investments. 
Yeah, and it's it's interesting, right? I, I think uh, I'm okay with that for now uh, because that's how technology works historically. Is that the Tesla Roadster was $150,000 so that we could get a $30,000 Model 3. The the initial LED uh, and plasma TVs were astronomically expensive for all the rich people to buy until the technology was able to be proven and made smaller and uh, more efficient. And now you can go get a, a huge TV for like 500 bucks, um, a, a fantastic TV. So, I mean, that's just... The nature of technology is it, it starts starts for the rich, and then we figure it out, and and uh, just through through technology and price and all that fun stuff, it gets cheaper and cheaper, and cheaper. So, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I definitely take your point there. The one um, potential extra risk I'd raise for AI, especially in the machine learning paradigm, is you know these machines are learning based on experiences they have, and the best machines yeah. will be recalibrated based on the patients that they see. Yeah. And if they start out only being calibrated on rich, rich folks, white guys, it's, it's then like they the might facial, not work for everyone else. The facial and recognition so, systems that were that are only trained on white faces. Be like, um, exactly. You, who thought about this? Who who missed the, the memo that we have right. other than white people in this world? Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I do so, think there's something different between a, a, a TV or a Tesla yeah. and Good some point. of these AI systems in that respect. But I do, I totally take your point. That's how tech works. And Good that's point. probably how it's going to keep working. Yeah. Let, let's talk about the rich white people. Um, let's, so one of the, the fun questions I like to ask during mock interviews uh, is the, uh, the, the morals or the ethics behind Mark Zuckerberg out there with his his um, kind of foundation or Bill Gates with their foundation basically saying, here's all of the money that we have because we're rich. This is what we want to study. And so here's the money, go study it. And there are other diseases and other issues out there that we can be tackling, potentially making a bigger impact on the world. But it's these rich white people going, no, I want to solve this issue because that's what I want to do. How much do you think that is just the nature of the beast and it's their money, they can do with it what they will versus kind of a moral, ethical, public health standpoint where maybe we should have some more regulation around that? So my first thought is I think it's their money and they can do what they want with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I And I think that there are certain investments in some of these um, foundations that are doing really good things in the world. Uh, I think the onus is on other folks. And by other folks, I mean governments, universities um, to step up and provide the kind of basic scientific funding and public health funding that we need for issues of broad social concern. And my big fear about the role that these rich white guys play in the um, research funding uh, ecology is that I think sometimes we might see uh, state governments, universities, um, even federal funders potentially saying, well, we can back away a little bit because this is taking some of the load off, right? Uh, uh, Philanthropic uh, contributions to research are the fastest growing in public university portfolios. And again, I, 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 if that's what they want to spend their money on, I, I'm not sure I would support regulation that would prevent that, but yeah. I don't want to see the other actors who 
are required or should be required to fund from a more uh, capacious societal vantage step away because this money is coming in. Yeah, that makes sense. So for our specific audience, for the pre-med world mostly, what should they be thinking about now? What should they be learning about now to make bigger impacts as a physician in the future with this technology that is here and improving every single day? Yeah, I think, uh, so there's a lot of exciting opportunities here. I think that students or future med students getting some basic conceptual literacy on AI and machine learning is really important. But I think one of the best news, uh, best bits of news out of research on this is that the best AI is going to be grounded in rigorous clinical research. So this is already a core staple of med school curricula. Uh, It's already something that students have more opportunity to learn frequently in residency and other training. And so I think really leaning into that so that future doctors have a good understanding of what rigorous clinical research looks like so that when they see the latest AI that's being offered on the horizon, they can vet it according to that rigorous clinical research making sure that it's really improving health outcomes and they don't get necessarily wrapped up in some of the hype. Mm. That said, uh, for folks who want to go that way, I do think there are exciting opportunities to blend uh, AI and health research for any future doctors that want to go that way. And so learning about that technology on a more foundational level can provide that pathway. And I think that when you have individuals with dual expertise, right, they really know the computer science, they really know the medicine. That's when we have a potential for some of the highest quality research to happen. Yeah. For, a student listening to this who has zero interest in technology, they're just, they're, they're uh, super anti-computer, they still have a flip phone, whatever it may be. Is is there a role for them in medicine in the future? Or do you need to be more technically focused in healthcare moving forward? I mean, I think there's going to be a continued role for them. I don't think everybody will need to do the AI development at the for the AIs that get deployed. I think most of them are going to be deployed in the background of electronic health records. Mm-hmm. And so most clinicians right now who are working with their epic records or whatever are using the interface, the the, the front end user interface. They're typing into text boxes, Which is they're horrendous. pushing radio <laughs> buttons, right? And I think that's going to continue to be the case. Uh, for the majority of practicing clinicians. Uh, and so the so I don't think that anyone needs to become a computer programmer to be a future doctor, but I would still recommend, even if you don't like tech, even if you're a flip phone devotee, get some basic conceptual understanding of how the AI works mm-hmm. so you know when to trust it, when not to trust it, you know, when you're in the loop. Yeah. For your book, The Doctor and the Algorithm, should pre-meds be reading that to understand what the future holds for them? 
They can. Um, <laughs> you know, so I wrote the book to be broadly accessible. It's meant to be a general introduction for folks who come from medicine to learn more about AI or folks who come from computer science or critical data studies to learn more about the healthcare dimension. So it's written for everybody. Uh, and so if they want a 10,000 foot view of health and AI, that's what it provides. Mm -hmm. If they want to know how to make the next health AI, they need a different book. Yeah. Interesting. Dr. Scott Graham, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and, and sharing uh, your knowledge, your expertise of this AI world. Uh, and I think we can quote that uh, Arnold is, is back and uh, going to take over medicine. What, what, if, what, if, what if Arnold walked in with his white coat and go, okay, here, here's, here's where we're at, the T-1000. Oh, terrifying. That'd terrifying. Be fun. That'd be fun. No. Uh, thanks for having me. This has been a blast. All right, so there you have it. Again, Dr. S. Scott Graham, professor at the University of Texas, Austin, and author of The Doctor and the Algorithm. Hopefully this was insightful for you. Uh, if you are a tech nerd like I am, hopefully it was fun to listen to and not too scary uh, to where the AI, the machine learning, the computers are gonna take over the world and take all of your jobs. Uh, hopefully there will always be a job for you in the world of medicine. And as things change, uh, uh, if you listen to specialty stories, which right now is on hiatus, but I've had some infomorticians on the specialty stories, physicians who have gone on to get further training in informatics to, to better help their hospital systems and their hospitals and their patients and, and other physicians and providers in their healthcare world to make better decisions and for better patient outcomes. So they're always, 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 once you get that medical degree, they're always interesting caveats and, and niches that you can go find in the healthcare world that will satisfy all of your interests and passions. Go check out The Doctor and the Algorithm if you are interested. I hope this was a great episode for you. Next episode, episode 500. If you have any ideas for what we can do to make it a special 500 for all of you, uh, I would love to hear. Just tag me on Twitter and uh, we'll, we'll see what you say. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years. This is MedEd Media.